we're back. I am licensed marriage and family therapist, sports family therapist, Dr. Lauren Pitts. This is House Talk pregame. Ronnie is not with us today. It's his baby boy's birthday. So he is off gallivanting, romping around the shindig, having a good time in daddy mode. But Ted, because I'm going to always be me. This is for you, Ronnie. Hey, Ronnie, I am still a diehard Dallas Cowboys fan. <laughs> so I needed, needed to throw that out there for him so that he wouldn't think that I changed up and got brand new in his absence. Look, folks, we have such a powerful show today. We're going to go ahead and jump right in. Today's show topic is bring your playbook, the agony of being cut. Recovering from disappointment and responding to setbacks is an important lesson learned from playing sports. These disappointments and setbacks can take the form of championship game losses, injuries, or a host of other things. However, one of the most dreaded is getting cut from the team. Oh my gosh, Ted, guest co-host extraordinaire. It's episode 129 on HT Today, man. And I get to be on here. Wow, I'm a part of history. So thank you. Listen. So we are super excited about that. Just, oh my goodness, the next to the last show of the season. But look, folks, as you can see, we have got a heck of a platform lined up for you today. So in the instance of time, I'm going to go ahead and share these bios. Our first guest today is Mr. Danny Covey. He lives in Embrun, Ontario, Canada. Hey, we got the international going on. <laughs> <laughs> With his fabulous wife, Carly, and their three children, Danny is a creative renaissance man working in graphic design, illustration, marketing, art instruction, and amateur video production. Danny's parents joked that he was born with a pencil in his hand, and from a young age, he was drawing and entertaining anyone who would pay attention. Despite having a good sense of humor, things haven't always been easy. Danny has faced many trials throughout his life, beginning at 18 months old. He underwent four open heart surgeries and four invasive heart-related procedures, which have left pronounced physical and psychological scar tissue on his body and in his mind. He nearly died on the operating table three times and was repeatedly told that he would never be able to excel physically. Yet after much blood, sweat, and tears, good gracious, literally, Danny earned a black belt in jujitsu and continues training today. His great accomplishment came on the heels of having his ruptured, descending aortic arch replaced in 2017. Danny's story is a miracle. Say that, one he is thankful to be able to share today. Danny, welcome, sir. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I'm really excited to be here. Amazing. Oh, goodness. We, woo. We, I can't wait for us to get into these conversations. Coach John Petrelli has been a professional fitness coach for over 30 years, having worked alongside some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry, from Grammy Award-winning recording artists to A-list Hollywood actors. Not bad when you consider it 18, John seemed to, bound, to be bound for jail or the morgue. In 2021, John's life took an unexpected turn when he became paralyzed with Guillain-Barre syndrome, GBS, a rare autoimmune disease that landed him in the ICU. With a lifestyle so heavily dependent on physical health and well-being, John needed to rely on his mental strength to overcome this disease. 
Through his experience, the book Confessions of a Hollywood Trainer was born, an instant Amazon number one new release. John. Thank you. Rose, welcome, sir. Welcome. Thank you. Blessed to be here. Thank you, Dr. Lauren. Goodness, great. I, you, you know what? Ooh, I'm, I'm, you know what? Let me get my tissues because I already know where this is going today. Goodness gracious. <laughs> I'm, I'm so serious. Let me just go ahead and be proactive. Pat Sullivan, author and speaker, Pat Sullivan has been a successful basketball coach, teacher, and administrator in the Chicago area for 44 years. His Providence High School and University of St. Francis basketball teams won a combined 602 games. He has been named coach of the year 11 times by conference, state, and national organizations, and has been inducted into eight halls of fame. He has also received lifetime achievement awards from his alma mater, Lewis University, the Juliet Area Region Chamber of Commerce, and the Illinois Basketball Coaches Association. Coach Pat has spoken at the Chicago Nike Clinic, the USA Coaching Clinics throughout the country, and has presented to businesses from Boston to San Francisco on leadership and team building. He also shared his expertise at basketball clinics and camps in Greece, Belgium, Ireland, and Austria. He is the author of two books, Attitude, the Cornerstone of Leadership and Team Building, From the Bench to the Boardroom. <clears throat> Pat has five children, Colleen, Katie, Pat, Ann, and Bridget, and 13 grandchildren. He and his wife, Peg, live in Shorewood, Illinois. Welcome, Coach Pat. Thank you, Dr. Lauren. I'm honored to be here. Ted, I'm emotional. I'm not even going to lie. Wow, this is so, it's just so much rich uh, conversation right here, uh, Coach. I mean, I, I, I'm telling you, just to be able to shape the young men and women's lives that you had an opportunity to do is beyond basketball and coaching. It, it's the look at those people's lives as a result of just encountering you for that short period of time. And I'm just honored just to be here to see a person who's been able to affect so many people's lives. And then these other two gentlemen who had health challenges, but are still sitting here as God's miracles, Dr. Pitts is a, is a wonderful thing. So I, I can't wait to have this conversation. So without delay, let's jump into this thing. I'm ready to ask some questions and follow-ups and all that. So we're going to start with you, Danny. What what motivated your your journey, your story? Um, just share your testimony with our. I don't, mm, go ahead, y'all. Don't pay me no mind. I'm a crybaby. Well, actually, after hearing the other introductions, I kind of want to just turn off my mic and hear what they have to say. <laughs> but uh, my story is very atypical. Um, I kind of joke. I never knew my gym teacher. Um, I wasn't that kid on the field that got picked last. I wasn't even on the field. I wasn't part of the game. So growing up, I could never do sports, never do anything physical. Uh, between 1985 and 1990, I had five different heart-related surgeries. And so I used to draw a lot and I'd watch TV and I'd look at Jackie Chan or Bruce Lee and they blew my mind. Like they, I looked at them and thought, wow, to be like that. After my um, third open heart surgery, when I was 14, I had a mechanical valve put in and it's, it's mechanical, it ticks like a clock, but mm -hmm. 
but it was the first time in my life where my health was good and I could actually do things. And I begged and pleaded my, with my parents and said, can I do karate? And they said, you can do it, no sparring. And that was kind of my introduction into doing anything physical. And so I did that for a number of years. Um, in my mid-30s, I got into Kazambudo Japanese Jiu-Jitsu, and I loved it. It was the first time where I could actually do something, take agency, take control of my life, and actually excel at something. Um, in 2017, my aortic arch ruptured, and I should not be here. Uh, you don't recover from that somehow um, through prayer, through the miracle hands of a surgeon through God, um, I survived. And 20 months after my surgery, I finally finished my black belt journey and earned my black belt in jiu-jitsu. And that has been an amazing ride. And jiu-jitsu has taught me a lot. And then rounding out to today, I got my Shodan title in jiu-jitsu. I've dabbled in Krav Maga a little bit and some kickboxing, and that pretty much catches us up to today. Wow. Wow. We sit and looking at a real miracle in front of us. Um, with whatever you described that was going on in your heart, I've never heard of it before. Mm -hmm. But to know that miracles do happen in spite of what yeah. man thinks speaks volumes about God's uh, involvement in our lives. So Man, I'm I'm just so excited. And just people take for granted the opportunity to do physical activity. Uh, even mm -hmm. as children, children will sit at their at their couch right now and play video games, not even thinking that somebody like you would have loved to have an opportunity where everything was working and you could have participated in a team sport or even an individual sport. But uh, I'm glad you didn't let that deter you and you found other ways to keep your mental state in a place of not despair. But hey, what's my next move? And so yeah. I'm, I'm glad you were able to accomplish that. And so most people wouldn't even go down the, the uh, karate or jujitsu role. And uh, you found a way to fit in. So Dr. Pitts, you okay over there? Girl, I'm great. Hey, Amazon, get ready to bring a box of Kleenex, a whole case. There's going to be at your door in a few <laughs> you minutes. Know, I, you, you know, we hear the word empath flowing around, you know, very, very fluidly in this day and time. And what a lot of people don't know is there are different types of empaths. I actually have an empath assessment that I do with my clients. And I identify as a dragon empath. And a dragon empath is someone that literally feels everything. I don't cry all the time because I'm female. I cry all the time because I literally feel people's joy and pain in every fiber of my being. And as a child, my mom and grandparents used to say all the time, I wasn't a person that brought home the stray dog or cat, I brought home the stray kid. I was, I was the, the person that always gravitated to those individuals that had life struggles, that had life's challenges, that had life's pain. And it was interesting because I endured an exorbitant amount of trauma of my own, but I was, rather than the trauma debilitating me, the trauma catapulted me into this role, even as a kid. So when I hear your story, it just warms my heart because I, I've worked with so many people that have encountered so much hopelessness and helplessness. 
and they don't have the resilience that you have any. And what I say to clients is, you know, I, I empathize with where they are and I'm like, there's hope for you. There are people that have endured so much more than what you've endured that just decided to fight. And people get frustrated with me when I tell them that it's a choice. Perseverance and building resilience and choosing to live, it is a choice. It is absolutely positively a choice. And, and when I sit in the presence of miracles and greatness, it does something to my heart because I'm my parents' miracle baby. I was I received a cancer diagnosis at 14 with six months to live. There's no explanation for why I'm here as far as the medical professions are concerned, but God said that we were supposed to be here. Mm-hmm. And that's why we're here. And it just it just does something to my heart. And, and just this before we move on to John, as I heard you speaking and I, and I hear, you know, some of my clients or the parents of my clients just going on and on and on because their child got cut or because their child didn't make the team. You experienced the ultimate cut, Danny. You couldn't even play at that stage in your life because of all of these debilitating health issues that you have, yet you sit here with a smile and gratitude and thanksgiving and and honor for the life that you have despite your struggles and that's what it's all about so i applaud you sir i applaud you and i celebrate you because folks just give up they're so quick to give up and you're a prime example of why you don't have to so thank you thank you so much for sharing that Hi, Dr. Lauren. Man, a couple things. First off, Dr. Lauren, you're going to make me cry uh, big time today. Teddy, I need to know how to do those emojis because I don't have any technology. I wanted to send Danny hearts and claps and Dr. Lauren, and I don't know how to do that. But <laughs> Oh, man. All you have to do down there, all you have to I, do down there, John, is just actually look at if you uh, hover over the bottom where your mic is, you'll see a bar, some bars down there that say reactions. Yeah, and, uh, first off, you're those. thinking I understand what hover means. Oh, that means kind of <laughs> drop your mouse over, like yeah, down okay. near the bottom of the screen. Whatever. Oh, got. And then yes. you'll see some says reactions, and it'll yes. give you all those choices there. I got that. Look at that, everybody. Listen. So now yeah. you can participate, and you I got that from a guy who is not a computer whiz or a tech guy. So I feel good that I was able to do something techie because I can do anything now. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Now, Dr. Lauren, before I even get started, you you said one of your goals before we even got on the air was that you could touch one person here today. And I love that. I love that mental philosophy, but you already did. This show has already touched me and I'm going to go forward with some of this new material, right? And, and Danny's experiences and your experiences, I'm, I'm living with that, that thread of who you are and you've already touched me. So mission accomplished. When you were talking about my bio earlier, before... I ever became a trainer to stars or any of that stuff. I started off in humble beginnings. My family are immigrants from Italy. My mother and father came from Italy. And my dad was born in 1921. He married very late. uh, So he grew up during the depression. My mom was a loving, loving person. If you came to our house, you were going to eat. She's a four foot uh, ball of fire and she's going to feed you with Italian love. And my dad, and, and before I even proceed with this, 
just understand that anything that I say, I don't blame anybody else for what they did. They had the tools that they had at that time in their life from their life experiences, and they used them to the best of their abilities. And as an adult, I understand that. But as a child or as a teen, I didn't, I couldn't comprehend that. And, and I couldn't bring it into my mentality. And I had, I got into this mentality of it was other people's fault or, you know, I never took responsibility for my actions because of things outside of my own, uh, what I believe my own ability. But my dad grew up during the depression. He served in three wars. He was in World War II, he was in Korea, and then he was in Vietnam. And when he had me, he was older. And he raised me more as a soldier than he did as a son. Things at that time, and maybe sometimes with men, maybe specifically, we may see things like love or care as weakness or emotion as weakness. And, and I don't blame him for that. He went through a lot and to the fact where he never even verbalized it because I knew the things he saw and the things he endured were very painful for him. So he didn't, he probably had PTSD. And at that time, we didn't even classify it as that. But because of my relationship with my father and him never saying, you know, I love you, son, or anything like that, I'm going to start client order those Kleenex from Amazon, send some to my house express, please. Um, as I got older, I was looking for his justification of me being a son. I was looking for his attention. I was looking for all these different things and I didn't get them. But what I had was fear. I feared my father. Uh, I feared doing things wrong. I feared making mistakes because, you know, I would have been called stupid or whatever. Once again, I don't blame him. But that fear as I grew older ended going into anger and anger ended up going to violence. So as a high school freshman, I was four foot 11 and I had experienced bullying and everything. It's a freak of nature that I've grown. My dad was five, eight, my mom's four eleven, and I grew to be six foot and so as I got older and testosterone kicked in, I, I had a peer group that I loved dearly, but I didn't have the capacity at that time as an individual to make right choices. And I was influenced greatly by my outside world. It's not their fault. Many people that were in my circumstances didn't do what I did. But to cut to the chase at 18 years old, I had just graduated high school, barely. I, I had dyslexia. I had teachers that literally passed me because they were tired of seeing me. And I got into a violent altercation, one of many, and I, I hit somebody and there was a very good chance that they, that person was going to die. And in a split second, I made a decision and I, I struck someone and they fell in the back of their head, hit the concrete and it cracked open. And on top of that, I had no idea. It was a big melee, a big crowd. Someone grabbed me from behind and I thought it was somebody else attacking me. And I turned to, to strike them. And it was a police officer, an undercover police officer that just handcuffed my wrist. And so that handcuff struck the police officer. And so now at 18 years old, when I was supposed to be going to, sorry. You don't have to apologize. Take it, take your time, take your time, John. Thank you. All right. Take a when I was supposed to be going away to college, I got into the court system. Um, I got into the court system and I had to find a new direction in my life. And the reason it's so visceral for me is because this is the shame I had connected with it and the regret 
not necessarily the regret for me, but what I did to an individual, right? But at that time, my mentality when I was in the back of a cop car was like, man, I'm going to go to jail for life or whatever. And I wasn't even thinking of that individual that I struck. And I had an epiphany that I need to change my life here. I need to stop taking and I need to start giving. And I made a definitive decision to go, how do I give back, right? How do I, oh man, how do I stop taking from people? How do I stop blaming other people? And as I sat in the back of the cop car, as they transported me, as I watched an ambulance try to revive this person, and um, I, I made a decision that I was going to change my geography, I was going to change my peer group, and I was going to change my future. And I ended up getting to go to college. I worked my way through the court system. That person lived. And at 20 years of thank you. <laughs> At 20 years old, I changed my geography. I had a friend that gave me a shed of light, just a crack of light. I called him up and I said, I need to change my life. And he lived in California. And he said, I don't have any work for you to sleep, but you can sleep on my floor. <clears throat> and I, I scratched together money and I, I went to California. And um, man, I didn't feel like this. I didn't know this was going to happen to me. So... I started a life, I, I planned, I took a test in 1992 to be a fitness trainer. It was like one test out there. And I went in with the objective that I was going to help people. But what I didn't understand is that as I help people, I help myself. Yep. That part right there. Yeah. And through there years of hard work, just helping people, I really whatever I gave out came back tenfold. Whatever I did for them came back more. And I went from being a, a punk kid at 20 years old to, you know, living my dream of helping people to graduating to working with athletes, to making my way into Hollywood, to going on international tours, to working with celebrities. And what I found is no matter what someone's title is, whether it's a professional athlete, coach, celebrity, house mom, we're all human. We all have a common thread. We all need love. We all need friendship. And we all need to contribute. And we all may need a box of tissues every now and again. Yes. Um, yes. And so just to flash forward, you know, I skipped a bunch of stuff, but the flash forward, as you had said, in, in 2021, after having a lifetime defined by my physicality, by being the guy that is physical, helps people be physical, I came down with a rare autoimmune disorder and I found myself paralyzed in the hospital, in the ICU for 10 days. I could only move my eyeballs. But everything that had come ahead of time prepared me for that. And I never, I made a definitive decision when I went in to the ICU. When I started, my body, my body started discharging like a battery, losing energy. And I, I couldn't feel my feet. Then I couldn't feel my legs. I couldn't feel my hands. They did a spinal tap. They found, they took fluid from my spine to try to find out what was going on. Before you knew it, I was in the ICU isolated. And I said, as they wheelchaired me in there, that I'm never going to complain. 
I'm going to do everything I can to get out of here for my family. And I know that there are people that are in here that probably won't make it out. And so they have it worse off than I do. So I'm going to do everything I can. And when I get out of here, I'm going to, I'm going to make a difference even on a different level. And this is going to serve me in some way. And this isn't happening to me, but this is happening for me because I'm going to be better. And so I filled my life in the ICU room with some positive things. I filled it with positive music for me. That's Bob Marley. I listened to music 24 <laughs> seven. I had my wife, who's my, my, my soulmate, bring me nourishing food and nutrients. She, she, I couldn't swallow anymore. So she brought me blended organic food every day. And I filled my mind with prayer, with affirmations, with where I was going to be, not where I was. And I worked diligently. And after 10 days, I was able to get out of the ICU. They put me, they discharged me to regular hospital. I was able to start moving my body. I left the hospital in the wheelchair. And I, I, I went from a wheelchair to a walker to a cane. And, I, and I'm not saying this happens by a magic wand, but I diligently worked hard every day. I did therapy seven days a week for four months. And through that, through this thing that happened to me, like I said earlier, I have dyslexia. In between my tears, I told you how bad of a student I was. I can hardly write, but I, I listened. I happened to be listening to a book. I got inspiration and said, I need to tell my story. And I wrote a book. I contacted someone that helped me write a book. I wrote a book and it became a number one bestseller. And I'm just saying that because if I can do that, someone that was arrested, someone that has dyslexia, someone that was paralyzed, Literally, you can do anything in your life. And I just want people to understand that message. If you're willing to work, if you're willing to put in the time, surround yourself with people that will inspire you, hold you accountable. You can literally achieve anything, anything. Sorry, I went over a little bit there, but wow. I lost my mind. Wow. I, you know what? I So this is what I tell people when, when this happens. This is my show <laughs> and I can run it over if I want to. So, so, you know, in the instance of time, I to, you know, if we don't finish right at the top of the hour if folks need to, to go because they have other commitments, but this is my show. <laughs> so I have, I, I'm not on any major networks yet, even though I have a global following. So I don't quench. I don't quench because people need to hear this. You never know. You never know when somebody listening to this show is on the verge of giving up. And they're hearing each of your stories. And we have it. I'm almost afraid to call Coach Sullivan. Overload, overload. Everybody's short-circuiting. But but we have a saying in the clinical world that says the more you do this work, the more you see yourself walk through the door. And John, your your life is goodness my sister is dyslexia and struggled has struggled with learning her whole life my husband is texting me saying oh my god this guy is me and my dad um when i think about you know i was sharing before the show started i don't know if you had logged in yet to hear but wednesday was the six-year anniversary of my first husband's death he died from complications of a drug and alcohol overdose um, and was had been a, a scholar athlete all the way up through college and then senior in college just things took a, a turn for the worst and, and it, the drugs and alcohol ended up taking him away from us. 
Um, and my, my current, I literally just got remarried again two years ago. And, and he's texting me saying, that guy, is, that's me and my dad. And, you know, as you were speaking, I, my clinical brain kicked all the way in because one of the things that I say to my clients is our parents have done the best that they could for who they were and where they were at any particular point in time in their lives. And we're doing them and ourselves a disservice if we hold on to bitterness and unforgiveness and resentment toward them. Nobody says, nobody that I've encountered, and I and I would wager that none of you have ever met anybody that says, you know, I'm gonna have me some kids and I'm gonna go to great length to screw them up. I'm going to abuse them and neglect them and mistreat them. And I'm going to make them think that I just ate their guts. And I just had them just so that I could have some people to screw up. Nobody does that. But people navigate life as if the people that they love and care about are taking out their little handy dandy checklist and checking off all of the ways that they want to hurt them. And that's simply not true. Forgiveness is such a tremendous part of our healing trajectory forgiveness of ourselves, forgiveness of the people in our lives that were human and flawed like we are, forgiveness of circumstances that were thrown at us that we had no control over. But more importantly, that, that piece that you said, John, about, and Danny, you alluded to too, it's here. It's making a decision that these situations, these circumstances, these people don't get to define me. I call it, and, it, and it's a little crude, but I'm gonna say it PC. We don't have to be the prostitute to the pimp of our circumstances. We don't have to be the prostitute to the people, places, and things that are presenting themselves as the pimp in our lives, eroding us of our sense of self, eroding us of the best version of ourselves. We don't have to do that. We have a choice. But so oftentimes people curl up in a ball and they navigate life as victims. And when you do that, you are doing yourself a tremendous disservice because in essence, you're giving the people, places and things permission to rob you all over again. You don't have to stay stuck in that place and space of what we call secondary gain. In other words, what are you getting from being the victim? You don't have to be that. You can take control. And even in those areas of your life where you don't have control, you can exercise some control simply by choosing to think differently. And it's very simple. It goes like this. When you change the way you look at things, the way things look will change. Amen. On purpose. <sighs> Coach Sullivan, I'm scared, but good. <laughs> <laughs> Woo, your turn. <laughs> I don't know how you can follow Danny and John, but uh, I would like to say this. As I listen to both their stories, you know, they didn't fail, but their bodies failed on them. And one of the things we used to reiterate with our athletes is your FQ is much more important than your IQ. And your FQ is your failure quotient. How often can you fail and find the resiliency to get right back up? And Danny and John certainly are examples of that. Uh, I'll go through my journey 
from an athletic viewpoint, I think three things influenced me. The first was my dad. My dad was uh, an athlete himself. And he must have been a pretty good athlete because like John alluded to, he grew up during the depression. He was a catcher and he used to get $5 a game during the depression. Dad also played basketball. And he told me in the gyms they played in, there was like a stove right in the middle of the floor. So they could use that as a, as a screen or a pick. Um, and, and so dad was a, just a big influence for me in an athletic viewpoint. The second was the neighborhood. Um, when I look at when I grew up in the summers, everybody met at the baseball field. We played baseball all day. Usually mom got mad at us because we failed to come home for lunch. And then when it got cooler in the evening, we all played basketball. So it was a, it was a poor neighborhood, but we all gravitated to sport. And the third thing was the school that I, the grammar school, or I don't know what they call it today, first through eighth grade. Um, I don't want to brag too much, but our school, we were probably the, the best athletes in a city of about 60,000 people. Um, we, we did an awful lot of, uh, an awful lot of winning. So that even encouraged him more to get into athletes. So my athletic journey was dad, the neighborhood and the school. Clinically coach, we call that systemic, right? When mm -hmm. we look at, when we look at the, the influence that um, the system has on us, I tell my clients that we're all a part of ecosystems. And those are the people, places, and things that have the ability to influence how you think, feel, function, and navigate this thing called life. And what a lot of people don't realize is that our life breaks down into domains, right? So when you look at, at the systems approach to living, you have to look at how you're connecting and with whom you're connecting within the context of your overall health and well-being, your love and relationships, your academic, athletic, and career trajectory, how you spend your time and with whom you spend your time, and even in some cases, and it certainly applies athletically, your financial situation, because we know that sports involvement is expensive, <laughs> right? There's, it comes with a financial commitment regardless of, of what you're doing, whether you're you know, playing on one of your teams, Coach Sullivan, whether you're training with you, Coach Kelly, or whether Danny, they're training with you to learn how to, as my, as Coach, as Master Bishop used to tell me, he said, Lauren, you're going to mess up somebody's day. It's like, well, that's what I want to do. I want to mess up their day because they need to know not to mess with me. So that systemic piece is huge, right, within this, this journey that we call life. And we'll do, we'll, we'll do ourselves a disservice if we dismiss how important the system is to our development as human beings, to our athletic performance, to how we navigate the athletic aspect of our life, because interchangeably each has the ability to positively or negatively impact everything. As, as you know, when, when I think about your, your bio and, and all of the athletes that you've coached over the years, you know, 
I'm sure over the years you coach athletes who had a death in the family, you coach athletes who had a breakup, you coach athletes who had medical conditions, you coach athletes who probably had mental health conditions. And the list goes on and on and on and on and on. So there's so many things that need to be taken into consideration to this, which leads me to my next question for you gentlemen. Hey, Dr. Pitts, I wanted yes. to just say one thing about oh, Coach Sullivan's uh, comment. Even though you use the word system, mm. what I heard him talking about is a true community. Yes. So the community yes. was the school. Yeah. It was the playground, which is considered yeah. what we call now the rec center. Yeah. And then you had the family. So mm. all the families, the kids played together. Uh, obviously, they had their challenges and all that, but it was a a true community, which we don't have today, is it's, yeah. it's, it's, uh, ver very, very uh, divisive. And so yeah. it's separated. And so I think what he just described was how a community can be together and do mm -hmm. multiple things and still be able to get along and produce great people. So I, I thank yeah. you for sharing that, uh, Coach Sullivan. So my takeaway from that was we need to get better in our 21st century at community and building that back the way it should be because obviously the product that came out of, of your community was good. And so why can't we start duplicating that again? So I just yeah. wanted to say that Dr. Pitts. Oh, no, I, you're fine. You're uh, fine. That's let that slide by. Great follow-up and, and observation. And it, and it literally leads into how I believe these awesome gentlemen are gonna tease out their responses to this next question. Each of you have a very, unique perspective to offer as it relates to this word cut, right? And what I would like for you to share is, and this might seem strange, but I, I think it'll make sense to each of you. I wanna know, we wanna know, why are cuts, or if we were to reframe that, setbacks good, for teams and athletes, and what should our athletes do if they get cut or have some of the debilitating setbacks that each of you have experienced? And, and Coach Sullivan, um, when you go, I'm like, I wonder how many players you've cut throughout your career. We'll get to that in a second. But Danny, if it's okay, we'll start with you. Um, whoops. Um, I, I was cut, like you said, before I was even, you know, on the field. And so what that taught me and, and why I think it's good, number one, it's, it's a reality check. And um, as any of these people here will attest, failure is part of the game. And so for me, being excluded from gym and sports and athletics altogether my mentality was, well, let me start with something. And so that for me was begging and pleading my, my parents to buy this karate book that was a step-by-step -step how to punch, how to kick, that I would stand in front of my bedroom mirror with the book in hand and just practice. That's what being excluded or being cut meant for me is just, well, let me start somewhere. Let me do something. Um, I think it's important too, why cuts can be good. Um, life is constantly changing. And mm -hmm. people that 
do well long-term successfully are people that can adapt to change. You know, if you've got this fixed mindset and it's always got to be like this, and then suddenly your world is rocked, how well can you navigate those changes? Um, But I'll just finish with this. The, the, the biggest thing for me is, and we've kind of touched on it here is that victimhood mentality. You'll never get a satisfactory answer to why did this happen to me? Coach, why did you cut me? Why did I have this? Why did I go paralyzed? Why did I have heart surgery? You'll never get a good answer. I think the better question is always, what is this teaching me? What can I learn in this situation? Because there is something to learn. You get cut by a coach. Coach, what can I learn from this? In my situation, what can I learn? Maybe I just take baby steps and slowly move towards my goal. So I think there's always something to learn. You're not always going to get an answer to the why question. That's good. That's good. And I'm going to, Ted, are you okay with us reserving our follow-up comments and questions till they each share? Oh, absolutely. I'm just listening right now. That was so good. I was just trying to find a hard enough time. I'm taking notes. (laughs) I'm taking notes. Taking notes like crazy. John, you want to chime in? Yeah. So I'm going to hopefully give a couple perspectives on this um, and hopefully not cry, but there's no guarantees here, people. Um, so I'm going to give you the perspective of someone that was cut from the basketball team, me as a junior, uh, in high school. And I don't know coach Sullivan, if they still do this, but back in the day, after our tryouts, there was at the coach's door, there was a list. And if your name was on that list, you made the team. And if it wasn't, you didn't make the team. It was, it was that matter of fact. Right. Um, so I didn't make the team. And at that point in my life, it was once again, everybody else's fault. Why I didn't make the team this other player shouldn't have made it, but he's friends with the coach or whatever BS I had in my mind. Mm-hmm. Now, a perspective of looking back, I think it can be a constructive thing for a coach to go. If a, a child wants it to go, hey, you didn't make the team now, but if you do X, Y, and Z and work on these things, we'd love to see improvement in that. We'd love for you to come back and try again and give them some direction on where they need to close that gap. Um mm-hmm. We flipped that perspective. And if that didn't happen to me, I'm glad it happened to me because although my energy went into a destructive path as a, as a youth, as an adult with the two boys, my youngest son, Rocco, crying out for the baseball team the first year, here in Texas, 208-year-olds tried out, 200. When I grew up in that little community, similar to you, Mr. Pat, we had barely enough kids to make a team in upstate New York. So everybody was making a team, right? So 200, and they break him out into two leagues, and he tried out for the higher league, a little bit more talented, and he didn't make it for the first two times. And his knee-jerk reaction was, when they tested me on batting, they didn't throw me strikes, or the sun was in my eyes when when I was trying to catch that pop fly. And I didn't want to take away what he said, and I said, okay, okay, that may be true, but what do we do in the off-season now to, even if those things happen in the future, that you'll be so ready that we can handle if the pitch isn't a strike. And so the next season he got better. He didn't make it, but he got hungry. He got super hungry. And then his third season, 200 kids trying out, he ended up being ranked number 38 out of 200 and he made it. And so through that, I believe my lesson of being cut transmuted to him of going, okay, how do we in a loving consistent work ethic way work on the things that need to be approved uh, to be approved improved on be truthful to ourselves even though it may be a little painful but start instilling a work ethic in him and and just 
for me, his face of knowing that, hey, he met the standard, he was able to work hard, and I didn't give him, you know, I didn't back him up and go, yes, they threw you bad pitches and everything. But now he can stand as, as an eight-year-old, now a nine-year-old, and go, I worked hard. He's starting to build this work ethic. He's starting to build self-love and pride and knowing that he can overcome challenges. For me, as a, as a father, as a parent, to have that moment with my son, it is, I'll never forget it, and I don't think he'll forget it. So that's my perspective. Thank you, John. Coach Sullivan? From a coaching perspective, I think the worst duty that you have is to cut someone. It's from a coach, it's, it's awful. And John just alluded to in our day, they would put up a list and you were either on it or you weren't. We would never do that. Never. You must respect the kids who are willing to put themselves out there to try out. And they deserve a face-to-face -face meeting with you as to tell them where you're at. Now, I think of Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen. Michael Jordan got cut from the varsity when he was a sophomore. But they knew that he eventually could make the varsity. So what did he do? He worked. Again, like John said, he got a coach. He came in in the morning prior to school and he worked. Now, here's another interesting facet of this. When Scottie Pippen went to Central Arkansas, he wasn't good enough to make the team. But the team said to him, would you like to stay around us? And he did, and he became the manager. So when kids are cut, they may have an, uh, an opening for them to do something, manager, statistician, whatever it might be. And then I would say finally that some of the kids, and this is awful, but it's true. Some of the kids don't have the talent to ever make a basketball team. So you don't want to tell them if you work, you're going to make the, it ain't going to happen. But you let them know there's other avenues, theater, debate, uh, whatever it may be, that he, he or she could really excel in. So you share that with them. And the final thing is, if you're cut when you're 16, my son, that happened to him. In fact, the coach told him, get ready for this. Why are you such a lousy player when your dad's a coach? Think about that. So Pat then went on and he went to work. He went to work at the Jewel Food Store. Well, today he's in the upper 1% of management with Accenture, a global company with 400,000 employees. He went to work. He learned how to work. So you can sit with the kids and you can give them viable alternatives. Just, just drop the mic, Dr. Pitts. Doctor, <laughs> drop the mic, Dr. Pitts. Everybody just drop the mic on that. Um, <laughs> Coach, I, I really thank you for sharing it from that perspective because a lot of times they do not give the respect to the person or think about the feelings. <clears throat> you're dealing with young people, uh, they're fragile. And right. just yes. saying, no, you're not good enough, 
can speak to a whole lot of things, meaning you're not, you're saying basketball, but if you just leave it at, you're not good enough for the team. Sometimes those mm -hmm. kids can take that on as I'm not good enough for anything. And so to right. give them an alternative, I think is just so important. Um, and, and sometimes you just have to be real with people. Just like you said, you're not good enough to play basketball, but maybe there's another sport. So uh, yeah. it's devastating to, to, to get cut, but I truly believe that it can be beneficial if it's done the right way. I think coach. Coach. Yep. Go ahead. Dr. Pitts, may I add this? Please, a good, please. A good friend of mine is Rudy from the movie, Rudy. We grew up together. And Rudy was told, imagine this, for from first grade to senior year in high school, he was too dumb to learn. That's what teachers told him. Then when he got to the community college prior to Notre Dame, they had proper testing and they found out he had dyslexia. So for Rudy, it was the best day of his life because now he knew why learning came so difficultly. And look right. where he is today. Right. <clears throat> Go ahead, John. Yes, I mean, Coach Pat, you've inspired so many different thoughts in me. Everybody has, Teddy. And I think it's imperative for people to understand that sometimes a door has to close for you in order for you to go down the hall and open another door. And Great. so as coaches, I think it's vital for us to take into consideration people's experience, their life experience and where they are. These are young kids. So to say, yes, there may be, okay, what other passions do you have? Is it theater? Is it mathematics? Whatever it is, you may find that this door closing, you would never have presented yourself with this beautiful opportunity. And communication is key. I don't think all the kids that, uh, that weren't cut, that made the team, live in a home like Rudy does. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Danny. Well, I was just going to add, I think in all of this, um, not everyone's supposed to make the team. And yeah. part, of, part of this is just learning how to handle failure. Um, you know, Coach John, you mentioned like your son tried out and he tried again and again and again. That built in him something that it, it tested his goals and it tested how bad do you want this? How mm -hmm. bad are you willing to work for this? Mm -hmm. So I, I do think sports and, and, and even the home, it's a, it's a microcosm for the world. If you learn to fail on a team and grow, you'll do that in business. You'll do that in life. You'll do that in your marriage. And so I know for me, we can wrap up our identity in so much in what we do, but that's not who we are. It's what you do with the circumstances you've been given. So I think, I think failure is par for the course and we're all going to face it. We all have faced it. And then what do you do with it? How do you, how do you overcome it? I think that's the big thing. Yeah. Right. So you all just did a beautiful job of tying together everything that I was going to say. <laughs> so I'm just going to put a so I'm just going to put a bow on it and say this: failure isn't failure; it's feedback. It's feedback to illuminating your path to alternative directions that maybe you should go. It might not be it. it when you look at failure as feedback, the the clarity comes that it's not necessarily don't do it. It's like, John, like you said, it's wait, right? Delayed is not denied. It's you, you've got to do some work or it could be as 
John and Coach, you said, or uh, Danny and Coach, you said, it could be, you know what, we need to go a different direction. So when people reframe that word failure, because the word failure comes with such negative energy and a negative connotation, mm-hmm. people freak out, fear of failure, fear of, Dr. Pitts, oh my God, I just don't want to fail. You're going to fail. You're going to fail because you're human and you're flawed and you're jacked up like all the rest of us. <laughs> so don't spend your life shooting for perfection. You're never going to achieve it. Failure is feedback. Yes, Coach Sullivan, please. Um, what was I? Um, I was going to say something. Oh, failure. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily, how about this? Win or lose, it's win or learn. So, That's what it's Ronnie says that all the time. Yep, win or learn. Lose and lessons. He says that all the time. Yes. And, then, yep. and Dr. Lauren, how about this? Should everybody get a trophy? Or <laughs> would it be better to allow kids to fail? And teach them how to deal with it. Because that part are, there, folks. Like, like Danny said, they're mm-hmm. going to meet failure the rest of their life. Yeah. Look, it ties into a funny story about my son. When he was growing up, I we, we had this understanding that there were times that I was going to tell him no. And, you know, in single parent and whole nine yards. And so by the time he got to high school, he would say, Mom, is this one of those times where you're telling me no just because? Or, or do we really not have it? And later, the answer is no, because everything in life is not going to go your way. You are not going to walk through life with destructive entitlement, thinking that everybody owes you something because of who your mother is, because of who your father is, because you know, you're a cute kid or whatever the case may be. Everything is not going to go your way. You're going to get no's. You're going to miss the mark. You're going to fall short. You're going to be humbled. <laughs> you're going to be like, Whoo! you're going to be tempted to feel victimized, but it's okay because there's lessons in every single solitary one of those experiences. And for those of us that are believers, oh, God will allow you. <laughs> he will allow you to fall flat on your face, skin your nose all up, have your abrasions all over your forehead and everything else. But it's like you all said, what are we learning from this? So, ooh, time's ticking, but we won't go. Can we go over just a couple minutes? Go ahead, Ted. Uh, Dr. Pitts, I wanna say, I know uh, we ain't gonna bother this today because it's too deep, but I just wanted to bring up the perspective. This particular panel, when we were talking about being cut, we were talking about how the the kid takes it. Mm-hmm. These gentlemen had a healthy perspective from a parent parental standpoint on how they uh, dealt with that in coaching and teaching their kid about failure. Today, I go, I got a grandson and I go out to these Pop Warner games and you would not believe if somebody gets cut today, that mm. parent is coming yes. to Coach Sullivan with ve- yes. venom. Why are you cutting my son? And they know he's not good enough, but they're yeah. wondering why he's not playing and they're living vicariously through these children. So I think there's an a imbalance uh, mm-hmm. that's going on and it, it'd probably be a whole nother house talk conversation, but I think that mm-hmm. needs to be touched at some point. So I just wanted to kind of throw that out there for a future uh, show. Yeah, that was actually one of the questions, right? And I'm looking at the time and I'm like, ah, I want to be respectful of people's time because I wanted to know, like, what should parents do when when they 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 their kid gets cut? So can we can we go in speed dating round? <laughs> can, we, can, can we just give pop in? Because I do I want to get these last couple of questions in, but I would I do want to be respectful of people's time. So what's just real quick, what is something that a parent should do if their child gets cut from the team? Uh, Coach Sullivan, let's start with you and go the the the, the other direction. 
ask for honesty from, from your son or daughter. Did you prepare as hard as you should have before mm. the tryouts? Secondly, when you were there trying out, did you give your best effort? Mm. So you had, and, and, and if, if the answer might be, well, not really, well, that's okay. That's mm -hmm. okay. Now we got to move on and mm -hmm. we can move on to extracurricular activities, um, work, anything. But you can just ask them just to be honest. If they did work as hard as they should have and they did prepare, mm -hmm. what, what else is there? You couldn't mm -hmm. do any more. So let's mm -hmm. just move on from this. Yeah. Thank you, Coach. John. Yes, I also look at it from the perspective, I coached my son's baseball team uh, this year, first time coaching uh, kids that young. Uh, I love if a parent comes to me and maybe their child has worked hard, maybe they have put in time, but they need attention in an area. And I think as a parent, it's like, if you're as opposed to getting angry and putting it as somebody else go, hey, give us your perspective on what we need to mm -hmm. work on in order to close the gap. And then you have that honest conversation with your child and you, and you make it fun and make it playful and you put the work in. And because if you have a direction to go, you can put that energy in that direction as opposed to just having names on a board and you didn't make it and there's no feedback. I think feedback and communication is key. Mm. Yeah, that's good. Both, both, both of those are real good. Danny. Yeah. Um, without being too critical, I think there's a, it's, there's a supply and demand issue with character today. <laughs> Uh, too many people are demanding things, but it's in short supply. And I think a lot of this just boils down to expectation. When you try out for something, you know, as a kid, what is my expectation? I'm going to be number one. I'm going to get this. I'm going to get this. What's the parent's expectation? And the reality is, you know, you just look at statistically, if there's 200 kids trying out and only, you know, 10 make it, then I think you got to temper the expectations. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah that that reminds me i tell my clients that we have three relationships with expectations and everybody usually looks at me like i'm you know i have horns growing out of my eye sockets you know exactly Pitts, what do you mean your first relationship with expectations is the expectations that you impose upon others the second relationship that you have with expectations are the expectations that others impose upon you and how you respond to them the third relationship that you have with expectations is the expectations that you impose upon yourself. And if people don't learn how to balance those effectively, now we have a problem because research has shown us that setting expectations too high in one of those three expectation relationships has been linked to mental illness. So we have to be mindful and that's where parents need to hold themselves accountable. Ted, like you said, people are doing a whole lot of vicarious living through their kids and they're screaming and yelling and hooping, hollering at coaches and name calling and all this craziness. And it's just not okay. And you each said it beautifully, right? We need to be able to teach our athletes at every level, because even in the professional level, we can clearly see some things they weren't taught. Just saying. <laughs> Go ahead, Coach. And Dr. Lauren, may I say something about my mom? Absolutely. When I was nine years old, I tried out for Little League. The kid down the street was a year younger than me. Mm -hmm. Well, he got a call. He made it. I didn't get the call. So he called me and wanted to go downtown, wanted me to come with him. 
so he could buy a baseball. I didn't want to go because I was devastated. I didn't get the call. My mother said, you will go downtown. <laughs> so <laughs> those are the old days. Yes. We bought the baseball for about a dollar fifty. We went and came back and played and broke a window that cost us 10 bucks. Yeah. Wow. Wow. It's a broken window. Okay. <laughs> so just a couple more questions and then gentlemen, I promise, I promise, I promise we'll, we'll wrap up. Can you just share a quick thought on your view regarding the relationship between academics and athletics? Because this is something that I see as a significant deterioration in today, too, that all the emphasis is on athlete and we're forgetting the scholar part. And I'm like, there's a reason why the scholar part is first. It's not athlete scholar, it's scholar athlete. Coach Petrelli, can we start with you on that one? Sure. So maybe I'll expand a little bit just even beyond academics. I think it goes mm -hmm. into mentality and physicality because academics mm -hmm. is mentality. I firmly believe that your mentality controls your physicality, right? The computer mm -hmm. controls the machine. So mm -hmm. in addition to academics, whether that's scholastically or you got to have good mental health, you got to, you got to, my tip for people is you got to be as kind to yourself as you would be to mm -hmm. other people. Okay. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean you don't work hard. You don't look at reality. You don't put in the time, but you got to be as kind to yourself when you give yourself an assessment as you would to other people. And I think you, those, the better you're going to be physically is the better mental capacity you have, the better mental mm -hmm. health you have. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Danny. Um, I think with anything, it's it's balance. And mm. you sharpen the mind, you sharpen the body. Yeah. And I know, I know for me, you know, I was always told you can't do this, you physically can't do this. Well, as soon as I started training, I'm pushing those limits. And what I found was, it's your mind that fails first, not your body. Mm -hmm. So even though my body mm. was broken and healing, I could push it way more than I thought I could. It was always my mind holding me back. So a quick summary, I think the balance there is you have to have both in your mind, your academics is what carries you long-term and you use your body in that, in that manner. Mm -hmm. Dr. Lauren, I like what Danny just said. The mind mm -hmm. can make a hell of heaven or a heaven mm -hmm. of hell. And the... Uh, the, th the thing that I guess I would be most proud of in any recruitment where we went in and talked with the athlete and mom and dad, we never once in 34 years of recruiting spoke about basketball first. Never. We talked about academics. Academics have to supersede athletics. They ain't yeah. going to play football the rest of their life, but they're going to use their degree. So yeah. academics uh, always, and, and last thought, you know about this just happened in the NCAA, the portal and the NIL, I yep. think they stink. Because <laughs> watch this, think about this. Whenever did you hear the word education when those two topics were brought up? You didn't. Mm -mm. It, it, you can't even say that the scholar aspect is secondary or tertiary. It's literally just like, oh yeah, that's right. And they need to get good grades. It's it's almost treated like an afterthought. And that's problematic because of exactly what you said. Like you're not going to play this sport forever. You know, each of your stories clearly demonstrate that 
the captain obvious the the athletic involvement it, it's it's going to slow down and then eventually it's going to cease and you're going to have to take care take on excuse me another role but if you don't have the ability to to think properly how will you ever take on another role the the what people don't realize is your thoughts and feelings are the remote control that determines the frequency that your brain is operating on. And the frequency that your brain is operating on is determining what you're emitting out into the atmosphere. It's determining what you're attracting to you. It's determining the law of attraction and the law of circulation. And that governs how you're thinking, feeling, functioning, and navigating life externally. And a lot of people don't realize that. As we prepare to wrap up, I wanna ask this final question and then the, the, the tidbit. I'd like to know what you each believe or, or what tip would you give as it relates to mental health in general in sports or kicking the stigma of mental illness in sports. And then as you're doing that, please also share with our viewing and listening audience how they can connect with you, how they can learn more about you, how perhaps they can have you as a guest on their podcast if for those other podcasters that are listening, so on and so forth. So your your tip on how to kick the stigma in men, of mental illness in sports or just a mental health tip in general. And then please share with our audience how they can connect with you. And let's start with John. Okay, so when you say kick the stigma, stigma means that there's an awareness that there's an issue, right? So I don't know if we need to kick the stigma that there's an issue. I think we need to address the issue and go, hey, this is such an important part that we can't bypass. Mm -hmm. In order to have love for other people, you gotta have self-love. And mm -hmm. I find through taking accountability for yourself, through work ethic, through all these things that kind of make you the essence of who you are and what everybody addressed here from Coach Pat, Danny, um, I think we have to, you know, put a light on that there's an issue. People have to give themselves enough time. They have to schedule out just like they do their physicality, their mental wellness. Every day, I meditate. Every day, I pray. This is how I set my, my ground. Yours may be different, but that's what I do for myself before I can go and help anybody else. I can't give my cup is empty. I got to have a full cup in order to disperse this to all the people out there. So I think that's my tip is take care of yourself as you would others. As for the other stuff you asked, you can get a hold of me on, on Instagram, john.petrelli. Uh, Facebook is John Petrelli. My book is Confessions of a Hollywood Trainer. I've been inspired so much by each of your individual stories. I want to do something here. Whether it's with young athletes, people, I have a great affinity for, for caregivers like yourself, doctor, that help people. I want to donate some of my time. I want to donate free. I'm not even taking any more clients. My schedule's so busy, but I'd like to donate some time. So if you contact me via my website and you want me to come in and talk, I will waive my fee. If you need books and you need a book, I'll send you books. So whatever I can do to help inspire our youth, our, our people that are taking care of the youth and go, man, no matter what your circumstances are, there is a path. No matter what you want to achieve, someone else has achieved it. Study what they've done and you can do it. You have to put in the work. You have to have support, but you can do it. I'll donate my time to do that. Don't hesitate to contact me on any of those things, johncutrelli.com, anything. And I will do what I can for free to help you. Wow. Thank you so much for that, John. Thank you. Danny. 
that man said he was a giver and he should actually showed it. Thank yes, you, John. You're Thank welcome. You. Thank you. I think the um, <clears throat> the stigma with mental health is to realize absolutely everybody struggles. Um, you're unique, just like everybody else. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think the big thing is just understand the value in struggling. And uh, for me, I didn't even touch on it, but my last surgery, I had nine minutes without blood or oxygen, and I had anoxic brain trauma. So I've had definite mental health challenges since that last surgery. And for me, you get waves of emotion or you get waves of negative um, mental talk and just realize that they're, they're waves. You can let them hit you. They don't have to knock you over. You can just say, look, this is a wave. For me, I go through a cycle of if I'm frustrated or I'm feeling anxious or I have an anxiety attack, is just to accept I'm going through this right now and to accept that it's happening. And then I'm next step thankful. Thank you that despite these challenges, God, I can still train. I can still do these things. And when I turn that frustration into gratitude, even though I'm maybe not where I want to be, um, it's amazing. And so I think just in summary, I took a lot of notes today. I'm very humbled to hear what both of these coaches had to say. I think the, the big message coming through loud and clear to me is be resilient and do not see yourself as a victim. So my, um, I'm pretty easy to find online. Um, I've actually just written a book about my heart surgeries. It's coming out later this summer. Um, but you can find me at my website. It's dannycovey.com, D-A-N-N-Y-C-O-V-E-Y.com. Uh, I've got a newsletter you can sign up for. But uh, I'm always happy to touch base with people, reach out, talk. Um, and I realize we are all here in some degree because we've endured hard things. And that makes us a beacon to help others. Yes, 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 yes. Thank you, Danny. Coach Sullivan. Dr. Lauren, I'd say ditto to both Danny and, and John. My website is coachpatsullivan.com. And... The two books I've written, I, if you would care to have them, I'll send them to you. Or anything, if you'd like to talk to a coach about anything, I, I, I'd be happy to. And I'll finish with this. The best tip I think that I can give, this kind of goes back to what Danny just said, is from Scott Peck's book, The Road Less Traveled. And the very first sentence is, life is difficult. Now, if you'll accept that, you're going to be okay. Sport. <laughs> Sport is difficult. If you can accept that, you're going to be okay. If a baseball player fails seven at 10 times at bat or a three-point shooter fails six or seven times shooting the three, they're going to be successful. Yep. There's a lot of failure in sport. Learn from it. Move on. Yeah. Ted. Dr. Pitts, I look now. I don't have to say nothing. I don't have nothing to say. Listen, I just want to know. I just want to know when the next show and you bringing this panel back because this needs to be a part two. 
And I think it's just so much that we did not have an opportunity to touch today, Dr. Pitt. So I'm going to defer my time to you to close close this out. Um, I'm enriched today. Uh, I've seen some, I've seen God's uh, blessings and his miracles in individuals right here today. So I'm, 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 I'm full. What you got? There is no such thing, in my opinion, as coincidence. And for each of you to be available to do this show today, Father's Day weekend, um, is such an incredible honor for me. I'm humbled. I'm emotional. I'm thankful. I'm grateful. I am truly, truly, truly honored. There's just not enough words to express um, how truly thankful I am to be in the presence of true miraculous greatness. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart, the work that each of you have done and are doing is to be celebrated, it's noteworthy, it's commendable, and the lives that you undoubtedly, undoubtedly are impacting is just extraordinary. And I just asked you to continue doing what you're doing. Please know that I'm granting you each keys to the house. You can come in, you can go in the refrigerator, you can eat up the food, you can drink the juice, the pantry's full. Um, this is a privilege for me. I don't, I didn't ask to be a podcast host. I didn't, I, I, I came into this, um, as far as my natural mind is concerned by accident, but God wanted me here, so I'm here. And whenever I have the opportunity, um, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm so humbled. I, I have a lot of great guests on HT. I mean, everybody has just been phenomenal. Um, I've only been moved to tears a couple of times. And, and that's, like I said, that's because I feel everything that each of you have said in every fiber of my being. And I just want to thank you. I want to thank you for, for saying yes and accepting, you know, the, the invitation to join us for such robust, robust conversation. Um, happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. Um, happy Father's Day to all the fathers that are out there. <sighs> mm. Full is an understatement. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. Um, just thank you. Thank you so very much. I, with your permission, I would like to share the um, the schedule for the upcoming season with you because there's definitely, as Ted said, there's so much more that we could have talked about today that is definitely substance for additional show topics. And we'd love to have each of you back. Um, and it's not, it's not uh, out of norm for me to dedicate a whole show to somebody too, because I do that too. So, you know, to give you the, you know, each of you have books. So that's definitely worthy of discussion too, where we dedicate a show to each one of you individually to cover a specific topic that you're really passionate about as it relates to your athletic involvement in mental health. So thank you. Thank you. Well, folks, woo, everybody should feel hosed in the face right about now. Because that was one of those episodes of the pregame. There's all type of holes in the face. <laughs> Look, everybody, have an amazing, amazing, amazing Juneteenth well, uh, weekend, an amazing Father's Day weekend. Enjoy the beautiful weather with family and friends and community. 
until next Saturday. We will see you then. Have a great weekend, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us today. Bye-bye. Thank you, Dr. Moore. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And gentlemen, have a great Father's Day. You too. Thank you. Thank you, you as well. Thank you.